There are lots of individuals and companies out there who do balloon decorating, mm -hmm. and they call themselves balloon artists, which is a term I prefer not to be labeled with. I'm trying to discover something, in my mind, much like artists in the mid-century were exploring abstraction in a new way. Hello, and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here with Jason Hackenworth, who is an artist who is most well-known, I think, for working with balloons. But that doesn't do you justice at all. If you were trying to describe one of your works to someone who had no idea what it might look like, how would you describe it? I'll be absolutely honest with you about that question. It comes to me a lot, and I typically do my very best to avoid it for the very reason that it is just impossible to describe the work with words. Because if I try to use the word balloons, so many assumptions take place so honestly, if I feel compelled to, if, if I don't want to be impolite, I'll offer people a look on my phone and try to show it to them. But I don't know how to describe it with words because there's no way to understand. Okay, then as an artist, what kind of experience are you interested in creating for people who might connect with your work? It's important to me to create an experience to truly make an awe-inspiring experience for viewers that encounter my work. So I'm always looking for a way to make the work as impactful as possible by using a space in what I artistically perceive as the, the most effective way to engage with the human biology and the human psyche within the architecture in which the work exists. And so I feel it sounds a little cheesy, but I feel like it's my job to, to be sort of an in-between or a medium so that the humans, the viewers, will have that experience that will stop them in their tracks. And because the work is so unique and unusual, we certainly have those preconceived notions about balloons, but when you encounter them in the way that I've configured them in these installations or sculptures, it's, it's wholly different and new. My intention is to stop people in their tracks and cause them to have a, at least a brief moment of a cessation in their constant stream of compulsive thinking and labeling. Everyone wants to label everything, put it in a category. I'm looking for a way to eliminate categories and be completely free and poetic. How as an artist do you start the work of creating that shape, that use of space, that color, that pattern, all of those things that go into your work. I would say that I reverse engineer the experience. By that I mean the experience that I'm trying to create for my viewer is an experience of complete presence. I, I want to sort of shock them into the moment so that there, there's nothing else. All the other thoughts and things fade away and all there is is the experience between them and the work and there is nothing else. So as an artist, to get to that point, I have to go into that space and then allow for the imagery or the concept to, to sort of happen. And I quickly get to sketching it. Mm -hmm. And then those sketches start to inform a concept for a sculpture or an installation. I can't do it by myself. 
So I need a lot of help, especially if it's going to be something really enormous. I made a piece at the National Museum of Scotland, and the piece was 60 feet tall and 50 feet wide or something like that. It's just enormous piece that was such a massive form, but on the inside, wide open, like a cathedral. You look up into this piece. It was called Event Horizon, and it was mostly black balloons Mm. with a clear balloon spiral that came all the way down and around, and then the piece was hung on a rotor so that it would spin, and as you're standing below it, looking up, that spiral, like a barber pole, it draws you up in and makes you a little dizzy. I mean, it definitely initiated vertigo as you stood below it, and you, so everybody would just start laying down. Oh, wow. If you, if you stood there looking, <laughs> you'd get dizzy, and so everybody would lay down, which was so fun. But how to get there? Fortunately, I have a body of work that's informed my practice, and so I know how to get there first by the math. So I have to make a sketch and then drawings, and then those drawings become diagrams for numbers for how many balloons do I need, and then how long does it take to inflate these balloons, and if I need to inflate more balloons than I can inflate, then I need to add more inflators and more people, and so I have to just crunch a lot of numbers. Never dreamed I would need so much math, but Mm -hmm. it really boils down to that. And then when we arrive with all of the equipment and all of the materials, you know, 300 pounds of latex balloons. That's a that's a stack of boxes half the size of this room, and and we're you know we're opening up these boxes and we're inflating constantly, and then we have a whole giant pile of bags that are filled with balloons that are inflated, and then my team and I are taking them out of the bags, you know, hook them on like holsters, and we're we're sort of hooking them all together and connecting them. We're filling up the form, and as it grows, it raises up higher and higher, and we add more layers to the bottom as it goes up and up and up. Inside them or no, just no, air? just just air, just machines that are filling them up. You know, so on the first day, I'll start a matrix, just like if you're going to knit a sweater. You know, mm-hmm. you start with a, a matrix or the first sort of row, and then it just starts to build from that row on and on and on. And that beginning part can be really technically challenging, and that's something that so far still I'm the only person that I can find to do that. But then once I lay out the matrix and and I can describe the direction that the sculpture is heading and show the drawings to my assistants who I've been working with for many years, then we can start to grow the forms or start a second form and my assistant can work on one and I can work on another and we can grow them that way. But then I still need people to constantly blow up balloons and pass them to us and I need other people to constantly be adding new balloons to it so that I can be doing the construction work. So it's just a constant process of adding and growing the form. And then after six, eight, ten days, we have these enormous sculptures that you know can fill up an entire massive Victorian atrium museum. Wow. So how many people, for a big sculpture like that, how many people on a team? You said it takes eight to ten days? Yeah, it can. And um, if, it's a, if it's a big project, I'll bring two people, my, my two assistants, and then we'll hire anywhere from four to eight or ten more people depending on how many balloons we have to blow up and how long we have to do it. Even after all of the countless hours making the sculpture and breaking my back and my fingers, and but then when it's done, you clear away all the, the work stuff, and you, then the space is all sparkly, and the sculptures are glamorously sparkling in the light. There's a movie star quality about them. Mm-hmm. And when you see them in pictures and in videos, you can tell there's something there, but but seeing them in real life and being in the space with them, and they're so overwhelmingly huge. There is that awe factor. It's hard to believe that we just made that. How long do they tend to live? 
Live. Live. I like that. I think that they remain robust for about 90 days. 90 days. So a museum can do a quarter show. It's like the, the flowers that only bloom once a year and only bloom for 12 hours or whatever. I think that's one of the things that's special about it is mm-hmm. how similar it is and how, it, again, it can teach us how to pay attention to life. Most of the work that I've seen of yours has very bright colors, almost like underwater sea anemone type colors, coral colors, Yeah. almost otherworldly. I'm always trying to find a way for the colors to have meaning for the audience and for the area. In the case of the piece that I made for Skyway, I was invited to be in the show and they had selected my work for the Tampa Museum and I was honored and they had envisioned my work on that upper balcony so that the people from the campus across the water would see this big colorful monstrosity from across the way. And they were very disappointed when I explained that we couldn't have it outside because it just wouldn't last. And so then they had to scramble for where could we put a large work. And the only place that wasn't already spoken for was that corridor that sort of connects the two big galleries above the steps. And so I was lucky to have that corridor. But then I went through my process and I came up with a concept that I thought was really special. But, you know, when I sent my proposal to them, they were very surprised and sort of hesitant. The sculpture was dark chocolate brown and some red and some sort of fleshy cream colors. And what I discovered in my conversations with them was, you know, in their mind, because it's balloons, it should be bright and colorful. And they're not the first to say that. And I've had these projects with other museums and I'm talking to the curators and if I suggest brown or black or some other kind of gray, well, we really, we're afraid that that's just gonna be too dark. And I wonder, did anybody tell Motherwell that his paintings were gonna be too dark? Or how about those Ford Beckman paintings that were all just black with the flat black lines and the shiny black bands? Did anybody say that to them? Was Franz Klein making dark work? I wasn't, I'm not offended by that. I just wonder, is it a preconceived idea that the balloons have to be colorful? And sometimes when I'm making them colorful, I even have to be very careful that it doesn't just look like a birthday party. Right. Because I don't want to do that. I want them to have a a powerful and reverent effect and not just be jubilant and joyful, which of course we want that, but I also want there to be some sophistication and intrigue. And so when I have the opportunity to use a color that's more sophisticated or challenging, I revel in it. You did not start out as an artist who used latex balloons as your media. And somehow you became an artist who did that. It was a frightening journey, for sure. I came up in the art context that painting was number one and mm-hmm. everything else was somewhere down the line. And, and I've since, you know, learned that to be absolutely true. But I'm just, <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know, these are the ideas that the old painting instructors, you know, were beating into us back when I was in undergrad and, and in art school. And, and then we learned that there are so many beautiful ways to express yourself. But at the time, I was still really afraid of branching out because I understood what the what the photographers went through when you know they were struggling to be recognized as genuine artists and 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 so I understood that there could be a stigma but I had a good friend who was encouraging me to try to use these latex balloons in this creative way and I was a little nervous about it 
but I I started just experimenting, sticking them around here and there. There was a, a subway station by my studio in Dumbo, Brooklyn, and it was really grimy and gross and drippy and slimy. And so one early, early morning, maybe 3 or 4 a.m., I went in there, and I, I spent half the night blowing up balloons. They're not easy to blow up. So, so really blowing them, yeah, not using Yeah, with my face. It was really hard <laughs> making little bubbles with them that were kind of dangly. And I filled a, a trash bag full of them, and then I left my apartment in the middle of the night to, to go do this thing. And that's really frightening. You know, when you don't have anybody with you and you don't have a team of people to say it's okay. But there's also something liberating about just not waiting for permission to do something. You just go do it. And then you don't have to subscribe to all of these different kind of it has to be this or it can't be that and so on. So I just took off. Went down to Dumbo with a bag of green balloons that kind of looked like slime. And I stuck them all over the ceiling of the subway station that was so low even I could reach it. And, uh, and they looked like they were just sort of dripping toxic slime yeah. from the subway ceiling. And um, it was very interesting. People were starting to come through on their way to work early in the morning, and they would stop and looking at it. And I thought, boy, this is terrifying, but people seem to be interested in it. And so I kept on playing around with the idea. And then that friend happened to be the curator and producer of the Scope Art Show, which is a, a big art fair. And at the end, it was really just kind of starting out. And said, hey, well, why don't you do it at the Scope Show in London? And he gave me a hundred bucks and a room. I was also doing, I was doing other work for them. Mm -hmm. So I would work their auction room and I was carrying crates for the gallerists who were bringing their work to their gallery spaces and so on. So I was working for them, but then instead of getting paid to do my job, they were letting me install in the lobby of the space. And, mm-hmm. and instead of the, I don't know, 1500 bucks that I desperately needed, I got 100 bucks right. and an installation. But the installation was ripped out while I was taking a little nap after 36 hours of working and not sleeping. So when I came down and I'm expecting Sachi to be showing up in a few hours and, you know, it's going to be my big break. All of the work that I had done in that lobby had been torn down and, and they tore off the, the Venetian plaster from the walls. And, and they hit me with a bill for 5,000 pounds. And I was just, I was sunk. Oh my gosh. I was really in a okay, state. Okay. And the manager had given me permission. But then that manager went home at six in the morning. Oh. And the new manager came on and said, this is awful. Get it out of here. Oh. And so they tore it all down. And he wasn't wrong. It wasn't great. <laughs> but it was, it was, but it was very different and it was very challenging. And as you know, you know, challenging work makes oh, yeah. people nervous. Yeah. Uh, and so whoosh, it was gone. Ironically, it was all out on the back dock in trash bags, just kind of like how I started, which was funny. Oh, my. Uh, it wasn't funny at the time. No. Uh, so I was in a tailspin. That was well, Thursday morning. Uh, and so I, I was pretty self-indulgently drunk for a good 24 hours or so. But around 2 o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning, technically, trying to figure out what I would do. I was broke. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a week was awful. And so I was I was pretty desperate. And then I had this idea, like lightning, to make a sculpture instead of sticking them around, blow them all the way up and t- turn them into something, mm. which I didn't really Construct know. Construct something. Yeah, but I didn't know how to do that. I just had a vision of it in my mind. So I took the balloons down to the hotel elevator bank area where the halogen lights were shining down. And it was probably the most well-lit place in this dark hotel. And I started making this thing at 4 o'clock in the morning. 
by 10 a.m. I had made something remarkable. Wow. And the gallery owner directors were coming from their rooms and heading down for breakfast and they'd come out of the elevators and they would see and there was so much wow that was happening because nobody had ever seen anything like it. And I wasn't afraid anymore. Mm. Now, instead of afraid of a medium that seemed childish or or kitschy or schlocky, it now felt like I had really discovered something wow. new. And it was terrifying at that moment. And, and I think that it was probably the most incredible moment of my life because when I made that sculpture and I got all of that attention from those people, by the end of that Saturday, I had been invited to three different countries to make more of those sculptures. Wow. I stayed up all night again that night making another sculpture. And then I, I got back to New York City with photographs of those two pieces that I had done. <laughs> when I left for London, I abandoned an opportunity for a job interview that would have me making enough money to maybe survive. But I abandoned that because I thought this was such a good opportunity. Right. Well, when I got back to New York, I called up FAO Schwartz and they're opening a new flagship store. And I said, hey, I just made some things that I'd really like to show you. And it was, a, you know, a shot in the dark. And so I showed, I showed the people at FAO Schwartz these sculptures that I had made, and they went crazy. Wow. So they built a platform for me in the center of the store, in the new store that they were opening at um, 57th and Madison. And they wanted me to make a giant sculpture on that platform every day. <gasps> It was, it was mid-November at the time, and they had me there eight hours a day, all the way up until the Christmas holiday. Eight hours a day, $100 an hour. I would invoice for all of the materials I wanted, and they would just let me buy them, and then they would re reimburse me for materials, so it was carte blanche. Mm -hmm. And they paid me, and I got a year contract out of them to do that. For a year, they paid me to just create anything I wanted on that platform. Anything. It was challenging because there are all these people who want to ask you questions and what is this and what are you making and why are you doing this and I don't know all these answers just you know enjoy the show and so I had to become a sort of a showman and it was a it was a theatrical kind of performance sure, in, sure. in addition to learning to make these crazy things there's a video on YouTube still from those sculptures and every day I had to come up with an idea and just make something I would sometimes I'd think about it on the bus on the way there like, what am I going to make? I don't know. Well, the colors are going to be blue and white and silver, and that's it. And I'd take them and I'd go, and then just something would happen. Or sometimes not much would happen, but I would still try to do stuff. Right. Just like an artist in their studio, only I was on a platform in front of all these people. Yeah. But by Christmas, I was flush, my rent was paid, and I was relatively safe again. And, and then throughout the course of that year contract with them, you know, I continued to document the work, and I put it on the website. And every time I would go do a show, more people would see the work and it would lead to a show. And I would do the art fairs because I had ingratiated myself with Scope. Mm -hmm. I continued to do their shows three or four times a year. And while I was there, I was making wearable sculptures. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I would take those sculptures out and perform them and showcase them and do these fun performances and hand out postcards with my work and my website. And more and more just kept pouring in. And, you know, all of that started late 2004, but by the end of 2005, I was just always on an airplane going somewhere else. Wow. A lot of young people, young artists interested in having a career in art, don't realize that the majority of what we do as artists who are working is solve problems. We have to find a way. We're always looking to find a way. And so I was given an opportunity to install in a most 
iconic location. It was maybe the most prestigious opportunity of my life, but I was only going to have 30 minutes to install, and the work had to go through a tiny front entrance. And it was supposed to be a 40-foot tall sculpture, 36 feet in diameter, but it had to go through a door that was only 7 feet tall and only 28 inches wide. Was this like a reality TV show they created? <laughs> it's my life. An impossible situation. It's, it's my life. And the solve. fun thing is, uh, there there are very few projects where there isn't something absurd that has to be overcome in order to make the project happen. And if it were a reality show, it would be riveting because there's always this nonsense that we have no choice but to work around, and we always do. When you have these opportunities, but then there are these obstacles in the way to get them done, it, it makes it that much more sweet and amazing when they do come to life, when they do come to fruition. We're in a very pluralistic time for art. You know, almost anything is on the table. You can use whatever you want, and then ultimately it's a matter of the experience. The challenge with the latex balloons is the is the ephemeral nature. You mm -hmm. know, they're so short-lived. But I have to just accept that. And you know, just like the monks that are making the mandalas, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's temporary and it's a way to inform our life and our way of living. I'm more interested in when and why others don't make work like my own. And I don't know if if it's because there's still a stigma attached to the balloons or if it's just because people just don't know how or they can't figure it out. It's not easy. It's really mm -hmm. challenging work. And so far as I know, I'm the only one who's devised the types of matrix or the matrices that allow me to create massive forms and volumes that don't require an armature for these to be applied to. Wow. Now, there are lots of individuals and companies out there who do balloon decorating mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they call themselves balloon artists which is a term I prefer not to be labeled with I'm not a fan of labels in general but the works that they make and no disrespect whatsoever there's some really lovely people making a lot of fun stuff but I'm particularly uninterested in making a giant soccer player on a big field of grass that's all made of balloons that's fun and it has its place and and people love that but, you know, when I was a painter, I wasn't making watercolors about the beach either. Right. So no disrespect. I mean, whatever makes you happy, please do that and follow your heart. But I'm, I'm trying to discover something. In my mind, much like artists in the mid-century were exploring abstraction in a new way. And if I think about those artists that I love, and, and they're, I mean, talk about artists today who are still really pushing the limits... But back then, they had, you know, the Cedar Tavern. They would hang out and they would talk. And, you know, would Franz Klein have been Franz Klein if he was the only abstract painter? Mm. Or would he have just been shunned because nobody else was making work that could validate his exploration? Mm -hmm. You know, I think about Martin Kippenberger. And as a painter, his work was so different from everybody else's work in his era. But he taught painting. And he taught his methods. And he, he taught how he works. Mm -hmm. And then 20 years later, an entire wave of painters that all studied under Kippenberger. And Kippenberger got some attention, but he wasn't the end-all be-all in right. art right. until all of his students became so famous. And then it turned out that it was Kippenberger all along. And then his work then becomes elevated. Mm -hmm. And I'm not looking for fame and notoriety. I'm just interested in the question... Can we foster a movement by giving away what we know how to do? 
how does an artist become more validated if not from other people emulating or pushing the the genre even further and growing it? And so as of yet, I don't know of any other artists who are bringing respect to the medium in, in the art world. And I wonder if one day that might happen, and if then, will the work that I make take on new merit? I, I teach printmaking, printmaking. and um, this semester I'm also teaching performance art, which is wow. very challenging to teach. Printmaking is what I studied in undergrad and I uh, started out as a printmaker, and I love printmaking. I've never been one to sit down and try to make a drawing of a thing, of something representational too much, sometimes, but mostly I like to just let it flow mm-hmm. and let things develop. And, and what I'm interested in with drawing are the curves and the line quality and the volumes that I can create. And then I'm always imagining those two-dimensional drawings as volumes. Even when I was making two-dimensional work as a terrible painter, I was still involved in a similar type of practice that was looking beyond, looking towards something that could be bringing forth something from the unconscious that we all have within us. And why do we have it? Because we see it everywhere, in the trees and in the wildlife and in every, everywhere we look, in the, in the hip of a, an animal or in our shoulder. All of those curves are everywhere. And all of those, those things that I try to incorporate in my work, we're all familiar with. And that is what makes it accessible. You don't seem to repeat yourself. Well, I will for a commercial client. And so, I mean, the reality is I have to make a living. I have yeah. a family. And so I'm always looking for an opportunity to explore a new concept in a prestigious and artistic venue. Uh, but the reality is, you know, if, if a huge mall in Asia is interested in the work or, or in Brazil or something like that, it's an opportunity again for me to maintain my practice, to make a living. But sometimes they'll look at the website or they'll see past works and they'll say, no, we really just want this that you've made before. We love this particular sculpture. Can you do it again? And the honest answer is, I don't know if I can. I can try. Right. It'll be sort of like that. It doesn't necessarily support that discovery that I'm looking for, but I'm thankful and grateful for the opportunities and, and for the work. The first time you ever see the work yourself is when you assemble it on site. The first and usually the last. Huh. I used to have a lovely studio in New York City, really big space for exploring ideas, but that can be sort of costly. Nowadays, I mostly work inside my head and on paper until I get to the the location where we're going to make the sculpture, and then it happens. You know, I have that history of work, and I have that body of work to borrow from all of those skills and all of those techniques. And so when I'm looking for a way to push a form further than I've ever pushed, like, can this thing turn inside out on itself and then twist around backwards? Uh-huh. It's very challenging to imagine it just in my mind. And I'm not the greatest draftsman when it comes to making drawings of these, and I don't use computers for it. If I'm going to take the time to create it in a 3D model in a computer program, then I feel like then, then the work is done. So I have to literally make drawing after drawing of how these things are going to twist and how they're going to grow. Uh, and then I, I spend countless hours 
just visualizing every single layer that will be added and where will the pinch points be? Where will the points be where if I don't get it right, it will become deformed? And then is it okay if it gets deformed and do we just accept those strange mutations? And, and, and the answer is almost always just yes, let it be. But I do try to, to emulate the drawings that I've created because I've convinced a curator to trust me that I'm going to make this thing that I've proposed based on all of these drawings that I've, you know, gotten them to sign off on. And But it is always a challenge and a negotiation with the materials. And, and because I'm always trying to push into a new and, you know, more difficult scenario, it's always neck breaking and, you know, nail biting. Because right. we don't know. Right. I, I've never done it before. Right. <laughs> Yeah. I've been talking to Jason Hackenworth. Jason, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.